Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 29, Everybody Hates Me, Guess I Better Go Eat Worms, where we will be looking at Chapters 61 through 62 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of jumping at shadows. As always, each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. We will finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in absolutely no way possible at all affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, spoilers. You know what you signed up for. Third of all, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. All right, so with that out of the way, it's your turn for another round of speed reading because you have the 45-second recap this week. I've got a stopwatch ready if you're ready. Maybe. Well, if you can't do it, raspberries for you. Mm, No raspberries. I'm looking forward to raspberries. You can eat as many dang raspberries as you dang well want. But I want to share them with you. Why? Because they're delicious. You ready for this? I think so. In three, two, one, raspberries ahoy. You're starting that over again. (laughs) In three, two, one, go. Quoth is faced with the task of healing the mayor against the mayor's will and without the mayor's trust. So Quoth does the only thing that he can possibly think of to do, defiantly drink the medicine himself. It has a desired effect and Alvaron accepts Quoth's help, but Quoth still worries that the mayor will die and he'll shoulder the blame. Later, Quoth visits Codicus and realizes that the mad wizard has an arcanum gilder and knows exactly what he is doing. Quoth asks about the Chandrian and learns more about the Lackluses instead. On return to the mayor's rooms, he finds Alvaron sharp and alert and a cage full of decidedly not-dead hummingbirds. Well, lucky for you, that came in at only 34.17 seconds, so no raspberries this time. Yay! This time. Yay! Before we begin... I actually want to address something that's been kind of weighing on me and then I promptly forget as soon as we start recording. We don't do that great of a job of connecting the dots between our lens and our analysis. But I'd like to know why we chose our lens this week. So this week our lens is jumping at shadows and part of that is because throughout all of this we see Kvothe continually catastrophizing and looking for things that aren't there even when they aren't necessarily bad things. So for instance, on the bad things category, we know that he is afraid, he's worried that the mayor will die before he can recover from his withdrawal symptoms. We know that he's worried that maybe Codicus isn't poisoning the mayor. He's worried that maybe the Sipquicks are immune to lead poisoning. He's got all of these worries that are constantly gnawing at him. He's worried when a knock comes at his door that it's going to be guards coming to arrest him. It's just nothing but constant anxiety for him. 
And meanwhile, on the good side, when he goes down to Severin Low, he spends a good chunk of time going the entire length of a street looking for Denna, even as he knows that it's too early for her to be up and about. You know, he wastes a good amount of time doing that. Like, he counts 23 inns that she might be staying at. He spends a lot of time looking for a shadow, just hoping to run into Denna. Much like he did in Imre, but this is more taking time away from something that will legitimately help his life out if he pulls it off. He's got a lot of concerns here, so we're going to see the phrase, I worried, shows up a lot. There's a paragraph where I think it shows up five times. Yeah. We get our first instance of this at the beginning of chapter 61, Dead Nettle, which is a reference to a pageant that Kvothe grew up with where basically a snake oil salesman is roaming around selling false cures to sick people and they end up dying and then everyone cheers when the charlatan gets his comeuppance. And Kvoth is really scared that everyone's going to view him as dead nettle, that he is the charlatan. I think there's a little bit of imposter syndrome here. Kvoth is afraid that people will recognize him as a fraud. I think he himself feels like a bit of a fraud, even as his recommendations are all coming from a place of sound judgment, at least to the best of his knowledge. When Kvoth returns to the mayor's quarters, he sees that the mayor is doing even worse. He's impatient. He is in pain. His complexion is gray. And in the intervening time while Quoth was gone, because he did take his sweet time, Cotticus has gone to visit the mayor personally to drop off some more medicine. And Quoth is already worried that the mayor has taken it. I felt a panic rise in me. Did you drink it? And... The answer that Quoth receives is, if he'd been gone any longer, I would have. You know, as petulant as the mayor is being right now, let's show some grace for him. Almost nobody is at their best when they are feeling tired, sick, and in pain. Even the wisest person, the kindest person, is going to struggle to show the normal grace and composure that we might see from them. So Quoth presents the first bit of his medicine, which is just a flask of cod liver oil. It's maybe a little bit antiquated as a remedy, but remember, these are antique times. This, of course, gets a very negative reaction out of Alvaron, who looks at Quoth and says, I throw up tea. What makes you think that I am going to A, drink that, and B, keep it down? And Quoth is like, I have a solution. I'm going to make you really, really nasty tea that has laudanum in it and probably some sort of anti-emetic. A solution, in other words. Badumpum. I meant to do that. Ruthless punster showing his face on the pod. Absolutely. I mean, a couple of episodes ago, you did say that you are a ruthless punster and on our Instagram, I made a little seven words plaque for that and said that I would like to encourage more of that out of you. And so fist bump. Perfect for a visual medium. Yes. <laughs> like podcasting. Yes. So the tea is, of course, not great. 
The mayor even suggests that based on its ingredients, it's going to taste like stump water. And I think this is really important. He refuses to drink it unless Kfoth drinks it first. Which is sensible, actually. Only a fool would drink the thing that was presented to him. And I am no fool. (laughs) Well, I mean, Kvothe has already put the mayor into the mode of thinking about poisoners. The thing about that suspicion is that it blows both ways. While this suspicion implicates Codicus, Kvothe could also be a poisoner himself. This could be a case of two dueling poisoners or two that are working in cahoots with one another. The mayor doesn't know. I like the sentence, though, after Kvothe takes a drink. A, he adds more sugar. And B, he says, you've accurately assessed stump water. (laughs) It's a little bit of disarming humor. Yeah. So the mayor actually is kind of grateful for this for a number of reasons. First of all, his stomach is able to hold it down. He hasn't been able to hold down even water. So that means he's been dehydrated. He's been in a state of pure misery. So being able to hold down something, anything, even if it tastes terrible, is an improvement for him. A few minutes later, Quoth asks, how do you feel, your grace? And the mayor is like, fine, you're right. I feel better. A, I hate throwing up. I hate it so much. And stuff that is supposed to settle your stomach tends to make me throw up. If I feel like I might be nauseous, and then I take Pepto-Bismol, my vomit will just be pink. That will happen immediately. Like, I will just take, gone. And, yeah, I feel better afterward, but... Not to be too graphic, but have you ever had it where the vomit goes up your nose? Yes, let's not talk about this anymore. (laughs) I'm just saying that that's always my fear, that that's what's going to happen. I hate it, hate it, hate it, I hate it. I hate it. So moving on, (laughs) with the mayor's stomach settled, it's time for the cod liver oil, which is intended to help leach out the lead poisoning. The mayor does the thing that little kids do when you tell them to do something they don't want to do. They do a little of it. So he takes two little sips and Kvothe calls him out. I think Kvothe is calling on some lessons from his time in the Medica. You know, working there, he had to probably give people medication that they didn't want to take, and he had to be willing to forego decorum to do so. I think he might be pulling on some of the way that Abanthi made him practice. Fine, you don't want to do it. You're never going to learn. Do it the right way. There's some of that. I think specifically, though, it's the ability to ignore all of the social status. Like, the mayor pulls out the, don't you know who I am? Oh, when things resort to, don't you know who I am? It's just so insufferable. Again, to be fair to the mayor, he's in terrible pain right now. He is not on his best. There are people, though, that are not in pain and are technically at their best or are supposed to be at least feigning their best that do that, that go, don't you know who I am? And people are just like, don't care. Again, Kvothe's challenge here is not to make the mayor like him, it's to make the mayor do the thing. To make the mayor healthy again. Right, and to make the mayor follow his instructions. That's a very difficult thing to do, and so Kvothe realizes that he's going to have to try and shame him a little bit. The mayor says, 
Who in their right mind would drink this whole thing over the course of a night? That's not possible. And then Quoth just chugs it. Right. He just, fine. You're wrong. Let me prove it. And downs the whole flask, wasting an entire container of cod liver oil. Except you might not say it's wasting because it has the intended effect. The mayor watches in disgust, but will not be shown up by the 16-year-old. All right, kid, you win. (laughs) Fine. And so then starts taking it the way he should. Two solid swallows, the kind that sailors use to drink cheap whiskey. (laughs) Like I say, I kind of figure this is probably something he's seen Arwill have to do watching little lordlings come in all high and mighty, refusing to take a hangover cure or whatever. Or STI medication. Or any number of other minor indignities. Doctors and physicers don't have the luxury of being able to stand on decorum. They have to treat their patients, and so they have to find ways to meet their patients where they are and do whatever it will take. Being deferential isn't one of those ways, though. They do not want their patients dying of pride. Exactly. So I would say this is some good thinking on Quoth's part. Instead of trying to reason with Alvaron, because Alvaron is not in a state where he can be reasoned with. He's basically having a bit of a meltdown here. Again, understandable. But when someone is in that state, I don't know if you've ever tried to reason someone out of a highly emotional pained state. It doesn't work. Accurate. It simply doesn't. So you have to find something that will appeal to them on a more instinctive base level. And at this particular moment, Quoth feels a little like he's won. And he says, when you send for me, I will brew you some more tea. There's only enough here to last you the night. Wow, does that power play not pay off? Because... All that does is make the mayor want to push back. I know I still have the streak, but when I was younger, full blown. Anytime anyone tried to get me to do something, even if I did think it was a good idea or if I had thought of it and was considering doing it. But if someone was adamant that that was the thing I needed to do, I would just do the opposite thing or do something completely different. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Sarcasm. This is also Quoth subtly sending the signal that he is in charge. And that is not strictly true. This is power that has not been granted to him. And the mayor refuses to grant it to him. And more importantly, Stapes doesn't grant this power either. So Quoth recognizes that he may have overplayed his hand a little bit. Yes, his instructions are probably for the best and will help the mayor, but the optics of it look like this is someone who is coming in and just giving orders. The optics of it also could be, well, if one's not poisoning him, the other one is. Or both. Why not both? Either way, it looks like a power play, and it's not a move that Quoth can afford right now. And so... As we now learn, while Quoth has managed to help the mayor have a settled stomach, Quoth himself does not. 
And on his way back to his rooms, he leans out the window and vomits up a solid pint of cod liver oil. I mean, he was able to hold it in for a little bit, but that much you're going to throw up. Also, especially when you feel like you're about to have Damocles' sword fall on your head. So our next chapter is Crisis. So we start with Quoth going in the morning down to Severin Low to pick up more cod liver oil, have himself a breakfast. Of eggs and potatoes, and now I want eggs and potatoes. I mean, I never don't want eggs and potatoes, but... <laughs> he also takes some time to walk the entire length of Tenery Street to find Denna. Which is a fool's errand, and he knows it. We've discussed that at length. This also ends up emptying out the last of his coffers. Or rather, the mayor's purse. So he takes the freight lifts, partially to confuse anyone who follows Quoth around, but also because of the lack of funding. Given that this is also the one that runs on sympathy, it's probably a little safer, too, for that matter. Yeah, there's a lot of things about this that I'm like, okay, who do we think is actually maintaining any given one of these methods of ascension? Because... If the two people running the freight elevators are actual Arcanum-trained sympathists, then they're in charge of making sure all the mechanisms are working. The horse-drawn pulley system has so many points of failure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a lift that is hanging by rope, which means that it's kind of free-swinging a little bit, even on a guide. It's pretty precarious. Like, it doesn't even have a proper railing. It just has ropes. And lots of stories of people falling to their death. I think he took the wise way up. Well, to keep up appearances, he does his normal routine, calls Brayden into play tack, and they start talking about... What the mayor does with people who cross him. We hear the tale of the mayor hanging a man in a gibbet who's been accused of banditry. Without even a trial. That's a pretty barbaric form of punishment, even for this age that the story takes place in is considered outmoded. It's something that you do to send a message. Braden says it was like something out of a play. He also says that even as a lot of people recognized that it was pretty gross, nobody said anything too loudly because if word got back to the mayor that they were criticizing him, they could be the next. Ugh. What I find interesting here, though is that Kvoth doesn't know how to respond. Because he doesn't want to say anything against the mayor, especially not to someone who is sympathetic to the mayor's whims or actions. But he also isn't really comfortable with the idea that the mayor would have done something like this. And he's not got the social cue back from Brayden on whether or not Brayden approves. He doesn't know if Brayden is someone that he can really trust. He doesn't know if anyone's anyone he can really trust. They also have a bit of a discussion about statuses. We get some talk here about how power is not strictly a linear measurement. So someone who happens to have access to a key waterway might have more actual power than someone who's just got a big army. There are many different ways to measure power. Sometimes it's situational. Sometimes it's numerical. Braden also talks a bit about how sometimes people can have 
two forms of granted power in the form of two titles or more. Someone who is the duke of one thing and the baronet of something else. So what does that mean when you're trying to do a quick assessment of where they sit in the hierarchy? And Kvothe talks about how his mother once told him that she knew a man who owed fealty to himself. Sort of a I'm my own grandpa sort of situation. Maybe not that extreme. More the laws are convoluted and I am both this title and this title and this title owes an army to this title. Although I will note that Kvothe is probably more amused by this than Braden is by all accounts. Braden kind of glosses over that. He also, though, probably knows more than one instance of this happening. And so it's not novelty. If Braden is who we think he is, he's seen a lot. Accurate. Braden also crucially provides some insight into the true power that Stapes wields. And I think this is the real important meat of this little interaction. Kvothe is thinking of Stapes as the butler. And that is part of what Stapes is, but not the entirety and not the most important part. We learn that even though Stapes does not have a formal title, he actually owns significant land holdings and actually does have a lot of money. His family is very old and they've been around for a long time, so they have influence. And we also learn, perhaps most importantly, Stapes has known Alvaron since they were children. And everyone knows that he has Alvaron's ear. Not only does Stapes have Alvaron's ear, he has his trust. And Alvaron is not someone who trusts easily because people are constantly trying to manipulate his power for their own ends. They're trying to take advantage of him. They're trying to curry favor with him. Stapes is one of the few people that he trusts as just a person who will look out for him as a human being, not as the mayor. So that means that when Stapes has an opinion about someone or something, the mayor listens very seriously to it. On top of that, there is a subtle, or not so subtle, message to Kvothe that if you ever need to call on Stapes, you do not send iron. Stapes is everyone's superior. He is the mayor's right hand. What Stapes says, you can treat it as if it came from the mayor's mouth. This is a bit of power that's been granted to Stapes. And Stapes takes it very seriously. There is a reason why the mayor trusts him. This, of course, makes Kvothe all the more nervous because he knows how Stapes is suspicious of him at this point. Shortly after the game of tack, Braden excuses himself, claiming a prior engagement. Rampant speculation, he is going to see and or hurt Dinah. Anyone's guess. And Kvothe spends the rest of the morning into the afternoon playing his lute and idly strumming songs. And realizing that, oh, I'm playing Dead Nettle's Lament. I should stop that. So instead he plays Leave the Town Tinker. Not much better. <laughs> it's almost like his subconscious is trying to tell him something. And we know that right now he is catastrophizing. We have future knowledge of the next big chunk of book. That, <laughs> quote, in fact does not wind up having to 
quickly leave at this point or avoid suspicion on the mayor's passing. Because although Kvothe thinks, okay, they would have called me by now. I said that he needed more medicine. I said I needed more tea. I said that I was the only one that could provide it. Why is he not calling me? The only reason he could possibly not be calling me is that he's dead. That is the only reason. That is the only thing that I can possibly conjure up in my mind as being the truth. And then someone knocks on the door. And to Kvothe's mind, the first thought is, it's guards. They're coming to haul me off. Is there a way that I can get out of here? There isn't. He's in a bind. And you can see him really freaking out here. And it isn't until he hears the messenger call his name and say that it's urgent that he realizes, okay, it's not what I was afraid of. Let's play it cool. Play it cool. And the messenger hands him a card that just says immediately in the mayor's shaky handwriting. So Quoth bolts off to the mayor's room. And when he gets there, Stapes looks haggard. He looks like he's been up all night, probably has, taking care of all sorts of grossness from the mayor, probably has, and he is pissed at Kvothe. Because in protecting Stapes from the truth, they have left a wide open swath of what the fork in Stapes' mind, and all he can do is fill in with probably the darkest reading possible. He is looking at certain actions, then he's seeing certain effects happen. And without knowing the full story, he is drawing a causal link between the two. He is mistaking correlation for causation. And it's understandable given that he's been through the ringer. Maybe not as bad as the mayor, but still pretty bad. So at this point, the mayor looks mildly better, sort of, like the fever's broken a little bit, but he still looks pallid and frail and concerning. However, his eyes are alert again. Far more clever than someone who is just weak of body and mind. And perhaps most damningly, the mayor says the following words. You'll note my birds are doing well. Yeah. In an overly casual tone. <laughs> yeah. I would probably be sure to myself. Which uh, Kvothe kind of does here. Of course, they're having to talk in code because they don't want to reveal this to Stapes. Again, leaving Stapes out of the information chain. Which is kind of dumb. And I believe that the mayor's patience for the experience is wearing thin. Both does a little bit of mind reading here because that's the only way that you can communicate in this entire stinking court. I hate it. I hate that kind of thing so bad because there are so many ways to misinterpret things. But Kvothe's distinct impression is that Mayor Alvaron does not believe that Codicus is poisoning him. Well, Kvothe himself had set up the parameters that would prove that that's the case. And those parameters, by all appearances, are not being met. He traipses off to Codicus, who 
reminds Quoth of all the little lies that he already has been seeding, that with all of the events of the past day, Quoth has shunted out of his mind, shall we say? And he's like, oh, right, uh, dim-witted, fledgling lordling person, that's me. Hi. Working on a history. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Again, we can forgive Quoth for being a little distracted and perhaps a little forgetful of some of this stuff because, oh yeah, he's had some pretty serious stuff on his mind. However, Codicus does provide him with some interesting history on the Lackless family. Before that, though, I do want to mention the elegant way in which he both displays the rings that he's received and subtly hints at people being able to take theirs back. It's a clever bit of engineering here, both social and just physical presence. Codicus may be evil, but he is clever. So Quoth starts inspecting Codicus's books and then wonders, hey, maybe this guy will know about the Chandrian. I wonder. And so he asks, what do you know about the Chandrian? And Codicus looks at him and just goes, why? Oh my goodness, you really are a dim-witted little lordling, aren't you? And while it doesn't serve Quoth's purposes of wanting more information, it does help cement his um, apparent idiocy or naivete. So then Codicus segues into talk about the Lacklesses, which is actually pretty fascinating. We learn that they're one of the oldest families in the world with historical references to them that date all the way back to a thousand years before the fall of the Aetorian Empire. They owned parts of Ventus, Modeg, and then a large portion of the small kingdoms with power that rivals Alvaron's current holdings. However, we also learn that Lackless is a relatively recent name change for them. Only 600 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's, when you go to Europe, for instance, you have a different scale for what counts as old. Right. So many people that grew up in the United States have this idea that something within the last 200 years is old. And since a lot of us can't actually travel, especially not across the sea, yeah, we don't have a scale of history in the same way that Europe or Asia or literally any other continent <laughs> really has. Yeah, I mean, I got buddies who live in Amsterdam, and yeah, a lot of them live in 600-year-old buildings, and it's no big deal. The other thing, though, is that, you know, as we're looking for a house and we're looking at the date that things were built, and we're like, that's 100 years old, the wiring in that house is going to be something that we do not want to deal with. And they're like, wiring? That's a new thing. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about these names that the Lackless family has gone by. Originally, it was something like Locklos, L-O-E-C-L-O-S, or L-O-K-L-O-S, or Lolos even, L-O-E-L-O-E-S. Of course, this is sort of how in ye olde times before written language was really codified and standard, people just kind of made it up as they went along and spelled it out as best they could. So it wasn't always consistent. But their name change occurred with a splintering of the family. So you can see that where after the fall of the Aeturian Empire, you would see these break off into independent regions and the parts of the family that were in power in those areas would have their name changed accordingly. 
the part of the family in Ator was the Lackkey family. That's where the word lackey comes from, you know. That's kind of one of those and so stories. Well, that's etymology for you. In the south, they became the Lackliths. And in Modeg, they became the Kepkane. And then meanwhile, they became Lackless's Inventus. I don't know if I agree with your pronunciation of the Modegan word, but if you read it and you look at it, it looks a little like Kessalan's name. Like, you might even be able to say Capesayan or Capesayan. It's possible. I'd have to ask Pat for the real pronunciation, but it has been years since I've listened to the audiobook. And if anyone wants to or can correct us on what Nick Podell said, I'd love to hear it. Please do. We're interested. I mean, I could go look for it, but what's the fun in that? Meanwhile, Codicus tempts Quoth with tales of his time at the Jackus household. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of all the people that I do not want in the same room. And in fact, of all the people that could be stirring up well, why don't you poison the mayor? Thoughts in Codicus's head and possibly providing him for more money than God. There is a potential motive there. We know that Lord Jackus has had his eye on trying to increase his power and rank. Being able to sort of take a soft control over Alvaron's holdings would be one way to raise his prestige, raise his rank, and potentially make a play for the throne later on. He's also a widower, so who knows if he's also making moves on Melo and Lackless. Or if he's got his eye on someone closer to the king. Either way, there is a very real possibility that the Jackus family may be behind some of Codicus's machinations. We once again get a scene where Quoth is watching Codicus make the mayor's potion. It's not medicine. It's a potion. And it doesn't seem to be very sophisticated. It's more like following a recipe. To the point where Quoth isn't sure that this is all coming from Codicus himself, but rather something that Codicus is told to do. And maybe if he's not really an arcanist, maybe he doesn't realize that the lead bowl is leaching lead into the potion. But even then, you'd have to wonder, how did this guy get into this position if he had no clue what he was doing? Con artist. But he'd have to be a really good con artist. He'd have to be able to do something to convince people that he knew something about something. Because remember, there are two people who are actual arcanists, who are trained, who maintain the freight lift, right? Right, but does the mayor associate himself with the people that run the freight lift? Maybe not, but those are two people who could theoretically expose someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Okay, to a point, I agree with you, but I think my challenge to this is more along the lines of when you're minding your own business, other people's businesses aren't forefront in your mind. And while you might have a suspicion, who are you going to tell if you even notice Either way, though, he still had to figure out how to gain someone's trust to get where he was. He'd have to know something. Maybe not everything, but enough. He'd have to at least be able to put on a show. But I don't think 
Inventus specifically, that he would actually have to be knowledgeable to pull this off. If he's a good enough con artist and he can pretend well enough, who's to say that he needs to have any skill in the thing that he's pretending to know about? That being said, as we go along, Quoth exclaims, Oh my god, is that an amulet? Does it protect you from evil spirits? May I touch it? Knowing full well that if it actually is a gilder, it's going to hurt. Or at least sting a little. Lo and behold, it hurts. I like the reaction that Codicus has. Quoth says, it bit me. And Codicus goes, seems I need to feed it, don't I? The big revelation here is that while there might have been doubts about Codicus, there might have been suggestions that Quoth is overreacting. The presence of a real, true Arcanist's mark tells Quoth that Codicus knows exactly what he's doing and that this is intentional. And while he may not be doing anything complicated with his poison here, it's probably because he doesn't need to. Keep it simple, stupid. Exactly. The kiss principle. So when Quoth returns to the mayor and feeds the birds their medicine... All throughout this, he's watching the mayor watch him back. They're having a very tense conversation that has nothing to do with what they're talking about. But Kvothe leaves with the distinct knowledge that Mayor Alvaron does not trust him. And why should he? True. Why should he? Yeah, if we look at it from the mayor's perspective, being a little distrustful of Kvothe is as sensible as anything else. In fact, trust is not the assumed position. The mayor does not trust anyone by virtue of just his position, period. Like, the only person that the mayor trusts is Stapes, and right now, Stapes doesn't trust Quoth at all. Because Quoth has been hiding things from him. Well, and Quoth has shown up just as the mayor is getting sicker and is making all sorts of presumptuous claims and really upsetting a lot of apple carts and inserting himself into positions of authority that he maybe doesn't deserve. And Stapes, not being an idiot, is well aware that he's being lied to. Yep. So with that, it's time for us to talk about our Frenemos. Earlier today, you told me that you were having a bit of trouble trying to figure out which of these people was going to be your Fernemos. So now I'm curious, who'd you pick? Here's what we've got. So our choices are Alvaron, who for the most part is kind of a passive character throughout this entire ordeal. He spends most of his time in bed and dealing with illness, even as he's observing a lot. We've got Stapes, who is pretty suspicious, and as we shall learn, is also kind of making a dog's breakfast out of this experiment that Quoth is trying to pull off. Explain the term dog's breakfast. I don't know that I've heard that before. You've never heard that? It's when you really fork something up. You make a mess of it, and all you can do is feed it to the dog for breakfast. Meanwhile, Braden doesn't really do much here but gossip and distract Quoth from panic, though he does provide an object lesson on status. Then we have Codicus, who's actively trying to poison the mayor, but also doesn't recognize Kvothe for the threat that he represents to his plans. 
alligators and crocodiles. So I'm going to go with the messenger boy who comes to fetch Quoth. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and here's why. So for one thing, he communicates the urgency of the situation without being imperious about it. Kvothe generally doesn't react well to that. However, because someone is coming in saying, this is really important, help, help, Kvoth goes to help out. It also helps to disarm his fight or flight instinct because he's got that going in spades throughout all of this. He is in full-blown panic throughout pretty much this entire series of chapters. And once Kvothe recognizes that this isn't someone coming to arrest him or anything like that, he's able to actually take a deep breath steady himself and enter in a state resembling composure, even as he's been driving himself up the wall. So is it a great for Nemos? No, but it's what I got. Fair enough. I'll let you off the hook on that one. I mean, it's not like you could choose Kvothe. Right. I mean, that just goes without saying. With that out of the way, it's your turn for the interesting fact of the week. What do you have? I actually decided this time around that I would present interesting facts. Oh. About hummingbirds. Ah. Because I find the little creatures to be somewhat fascinating, which also reminds me that I should put out my hummingbird feeders. So, fact the one. A hummingbird can consume up to 50% of its body weight each day and eats five to eight times per hour. Because it has to. Yeah, they have to beat their wings crazy fast to be able to stay where they are and just stay aloft. That's a lot. The average hummingbird's heart beats over 1,200 times per minute. If ours did that, we'd be dead. Dead, dead, dead. There are more than 350 unique species of hummingbirds over the entire world, and they're all natives to North and South America. So that is interesting because that means that the world of Temerant is not just a easy analog for Europe and Asia. It spans all of our world continents. If you want to think about it that way, sure. <laughs> Hummingbirds can't walk or hop. Their feet evolved to be very tiny so that they would weigh less. And they only use them to scooch back and forth on tree branches and to preen. That's adorable. The little fact sheet on hummingbirds that I found said the word scooch, so I had to use the word scooch. Nice. <laughs> so with only 1,000 to 1,500 feathers, hummingbirds are the birds with the least amount of feathers, partly because of their minuscule size, but also because fewer feathers means they weigh less. Next fact in a bit of a throwback to one of our very first interesting facts, the brightly colored patch at the throats of hummingbirds has little or nothing to do with actual feather pigmentation, but rather how light refracts within the feathers at the angle that the feathers lie at the joint between the head and the body of the bird. So in the same way that your eyes aren't actually blue, they're just reflecting blue because of the structure of your eyes, or a blue butterfly's wings are not actually blue, but rather reflecting and refracting blue. Hummingbirds don't really have a red patch between their head and their body. It's not pigmented red. Interesting. Next fact. Hummingbirds do not suck nectar up into their mouths. Instead, 
they rely on capillary action to draw liquid into their bills. It's like if you dunk the corner of a paper towel into water and it eventually soaks the rest of the paper towel or like the way that like a cut flower stem will suck the water from the vase up into the flower, which you can prove by putting food dye in your water because it will also suck all that up. And finally, a hummingbird's wings beat between 50 and 200 flaps per second, depending on the direction of flight and the reason for flying, as well as the surrounding air conditions. Their pectoral muscles comprise 30 to 50% of their body weight to sustain this vigorous flight. Yeah, it makes sense. That would be pretty exhausting. Hence, any day feet. Well, cool. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. So with that, it is now my turn for the thing of the week. So my recommendation is for a YouTube channel that we both enjoy watching, which is Crimson Custom Guitars. They are a British-based custom luthier. Ben Crow is the owner and proprietor and the host of the show. And while he is definitely a craftsman, a lot of the guitars that he builds on the show are really art. There is a level of improvisation involved in these that goes beyond just something that you would buy at a guitar shop. Each one of these that he produces is one of a kind and it is built for a specific purpose. Sometimes it is just because he thinks it's cool and wants to do something inspired by a show or a movie or a game or a book. Or it's something that is made for a friend or just to capture a specific mood that he's in at a given moment. And actually with the ones that we've been watching, it's also combined with a function. In this case, a few years ago, he made his daughter a guitar that she does not like playing because it's a Strat style guitar that weighed 10 plus pounds. And nope. It was also finished poorly and it looked like a rush job. And so Ben took the guitar and made sure that there was some weight relief, but made it aesthetically pleasing and did a fantastic, what he calls flip-flop finish, which is color shifting between purple and blue, and made the guitar look appropriate for someone who has more feminine aesthetics without making it look stereotypically girly. It looks badass. And the whole time that he's doing this, he's making decisions that maybe in hindsight, once he gets done with them, were not the right decisions. So that's actually something that I wanted to get at. You get to see his ideas evolve over time. So while Ben starts with a plan, he gives himself time and the opportunity to take inspiration, to improvise. Sometimes this yields fruit, sometimes it really doesn't. But the thing that strikes me is that even when it doesn't work out, when Ben has an idea and he follows it through to its natural conclusion and it really doesn't work and it hits a dead end, he says, okay, well, I'm going to have to spend some time undoing it and I'll have to start over, but we learned something. And he just keeps moving and keeps working on it. He is approaching this with a level of thoughtfulness and grace and compassion and determination that I find really inspiring. So like the end result oftentimes looks 
very different from what he's initially been sketching out, what he'd initially thought he was going to make. But it ends up looking beautiful in its own right. So one of the things you might have noticed in a lot of our recommended things is that we oftentimes talk about giving yourself grace for mistakes and errors. And it's a value that I hold strongly, but it's not because it's something that comes naturally to me or that it's something that I'm good at. In fact, I tend to be incredibly hard on myself and I'm oftentimes my own worst critic, but this isn't good for me. I know this. And so anytime I see positive examples of people giving themselves grace for mistakes and errors, it helps me to do the same for myself. Because when I see these people pick themselves up from mistakes and move forward and grow, it reminds me that I can do the same, that I don't have to be defined by that mistake, that that mistake does not become me. It's just something that I learn from and I can move forward on. And I think it's really important to surround yourself with those sorts of reminders because for me, that's not my natural impulse. And so anytime I have a reminder, it is a chance for me to step back, breathe a little bit and move forward. What I also really like about this is that when he realizes that something that he's doing that he thought would be a great idea or at least a passable idea is definitely not working, he doesn't keep trying to make it work. He takes a little bit of time, thinks about what he's done, thinks about another option that he could have done, and tries that instead. He doesn't fall into that sunk cost fallacy problem where I've put so much effort into doing it this way that I have to finish. Yes, I'm only a sixth of the way through this, but I cannot possibly cut bait and run. He does the opposite. He cuts bait. As soon as he knows for certain this is taking too long and not having the result I want, or just not having the result I want, or I have thought of something cooler, or whatever, he doesn't just keep putting his effort into a thing that is no longer working. On top of that, he gives himself that freedom to make that call. And he also recognizes when he is in a state where he doesn't make good decisions. So he is good about saying, well, it is actually getting really late. And while I want to keep working on this, I will not do a good job on this. If I keep doing this, I need to come back when I've had a chance to rest, have food. Or more often than not, he will have realized after he did something that he shouldn't have done it because he knew better. And then he's very gracious to himself about saying it out loud, teaching the rest of us who are watching him to follow what he says and not necessarily what he does. And he's saying, look, I made this mistake. I stayed up too late working on this or I forgot to drink my coffee in the morning, so I made some mistakes. Or I haven't eaten. Don't do what I just did. He lets you see his whole process, warts and all. So it's a reminder that the creative process is not always a straight line. In fact, it almost never is. It involves mistakes, some trial and error. It involves a little bit of improvisation. It involves being willing to accept that Things don't always work the way you intend them to, and then moving forward. And the other reason to watch it is because eye candy on all the really pretty guitars that he's made. Absolutely. 
he's done a couple really cool ones. So he's done his Boba Fret Mandalorian inspired one that he did recently. He also had a cyberpunk guitar that he did at the start of the pandemic back in 2020 that took him a good eight months. That's the other thing that is really cool about this is it shows that even if you are really good at something, it can take a lot of time and effort to get it to a state where it is done. Anyway, I thought you all might enjoy this. We'll include the links to the YouTube channel in our show notes, as well as on our Discord server. Probably easier for me to do a link in the Discord server because you can actually get to it because trying to click on a link in a podcast note is... Uh, yeah. Also on our Patreon. Yes, also on our Patreon. I promise that it will be in all of those places. You should join our Discord. So, with that, it is time for us to do seven words from the books. I found some really awesome ones from the books, and I'm wondering which one or ones you're going to talk about this time. So I've got a number of options here. First of all, we've got Stapes was not pleased to see me. <laughs> yeah, I got that. Then we've got I found everything I needed, Your Grace. I felt a panic rise in me. And to hell with your fairy stories. Remember, tonight will be the most difficult. He might not live through the night. Then act the part of a man. It is a malicious and unreasonable request. Well, banditry is a terrible thing. You'll note my birds are doing well. That is the nature of my illness. He knew exactly what he was doing. And then my actual seven words. You can borrow this if you'd like. When someone gives you the opportunity to borrow a book, it represents a gift of sorts. It says, I trust you with a story, with a book, with something that I value. And I think there's something kind of pretty about that. I think there's something deep to it, even if it's said by Codicus, who's a jerk. So we also have things like, do you know anything about the Chandrian? And you were curious about the Lackless family. As well as, maybe Codicus wasn't an Arcanist. Those are options I still like mine best. Fair enough. So with that out of the way, it is your turn for seven words from life. What do you have? So a couple of times ago, I said I wasn't going to use the one that I was planning on because I changed to the quote from Joe Barrup instead. So this time I am going to tell everyone the seven word quote that I was going to say, I think in episode 27, if I'm not mistaken. Without the burden of comparison, everything's beautiful. That's a good one. And that came from John Green on one of the Vlogbrothers videos in the last month or two. If you don't have anything to compare or contrast against, whatever enters into your field of view or whatever comes in as a thought or a concept or a sound or a feeling, if you're not constantly trying to compare it against something else, you can actually see the beauty in it. If you look at something that you draw and say, but I can't draw as well as this other person who is a professional artist, so mine isn't beautiful. That's incorrect. Yours has beauty no matter what. 
it might not be what you wanted to draw, what you saw in your head. I very rarely am able to draw the thing that I see in my head. It may not be the thing that you're seeing in front of you, but that doesn't mean it's not beautiful just because it's not rendered the way that you maybe had wanted. Without comparing yourself to another person, you can more easily see the beauty within yourself. Imposter syndrome is all about comparing yourself to what you think other people are experiencing or doing or like or knowledgeable about. You don't know what's going on in their head. You cannot read their mind. You are not Professor X. You are not Jean Grey. You cannot possibly know what another person is thinking at any given moment. You cannot know their internal dialogue, their ruminations, their doubts, whether or not they're a narcissist. You can't know if they are confident or if they're putting on a show and it's just convincing you. If I look at anything in this room, my piano, for instance, isn't the most high-end digital piano out there. And maybe it wasn't the one that I had initially wanted when I first set out to get a digital piano, but it was the one that we could afford at the time, and it sounds lovely, regardless of if I'm the one playing it or not, because I don't necessarily sound great playing the piano, but it's a way for me to relax and decompress and hear something akin to music. And my playing, while not the most beautiful in the world, still brings me joy and comfort and has its own type of beauty. Listening to someone learn how to play an instrument, watching someone learn how to draw an apple, watching someone choose to go in a non-conventional path and maybe do something that you wouldn't have done is beautiful. There is beauty in each one of these things. And you don't have to quantify it or qualify it. It doesn't have to be, this is beautiful, but this other thing is more beautiful. It can just be for its own sake. I think that's very wise. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 63 through 64 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of overcoming resistance. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating the worlds that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please join us over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can find early access to the show, special bonus pods, art that I pour my soul into, and also links to the Discord, which are included in the show notes to this on whatever platform you are listening to, as long as it takes my description of the podcast over and, you know, lets you have it. Sounded weird. Don't care. Leaving it in. Anyhoozle, we would really, really, really love more people on our Discord. It's a lot of fun. We share memes and we want to talk about theories with all y'all. And I mean, right now we're getting super into the Brayden as a Chandrian 
territory and we're going to have the Adem coming up eventually and Florian eventually and other things eventually and it would be really fun to talk with you did I sell it well I hope I sold it well and as always here's to one more day above the roses to one more day above the roses ding, ding. Next time, will you make a flat surface? So the tigers will die? Yes, so that tigers will die. I would absolutely, totally, 1000% use that as an outtake, except no one, literally no one, will know why you said that. Except maybe the Richards, but I don't think they listen. You never know. I mean, the Richards hear many things. Including our podcast. Maybe they're on our Discord server. More references to things that no one will understand. Tigers will die on a flat surface. Adorable. Not true, but adorable. <laughs>